us pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father God, we were humbled by your word, by the amazing power that it holds. And God, I'm humbled this morning as a beggar in need of your grace. God, I know and I trust, uh, God, this morning that your word will not return void. God, no matter what comes out of these lips, uh, God, that, um, God, that your word is sufficient. God, there's nothing that I can say that will change that. And God, I just ask that you humble me. God, that you would be glorified. Um, God, that I would be made low. And God, I, I pray in that for the hearts of this church, God, that they would be encouraged. God, that they would be drawn closer to you. And that those that don't know you would hear the gospel and repent and believe. Lord Jesus, we love you and we praise your holy name. Amen. Good morning, church family. Good to see you. It's a privilege to be up here and open up God's word with you all. For the past six months or so, uh, Mondays have been rice and beans night for my family. Every Monday night, we tried to only eat meals made up of rice, beans, and very little flavor. No tortilla chips, no bacon. Okay, sometimes we cheat and have bacon with it. Um, but no dessert, just rice, beans, and water to wash it down. I make it sound a little painful, but it really hasn't been all that bad I'm sure my kids would disagree. Linda and I's motive in this is to build our family up, to experience at a very basic level what so many people in third world countries experience most days. We bought a really cool book called Window on the World. I would encourage you guys to take a look at it. Uh, that introduces us to many countries, cultures, and religions all around the world. And it gives us a way to be praying for these religions, cultures, and countries, these different people. We spend a lot of time learning together, uh, asking questions, being thankful, um, and praying together, all while really not enjoying our food all that much. We even found an opportunity a few months back uh, to serve along many other families at another church by putting rice and bean meals together for families in Afghanistan and South Sudan, uh, where really there isn't enough nutritious food available uh, for everyone to live healthy lives. And we don't do this perfectly, and it's and not always received the best. I'm sure we've each complained on multiple occasions or silently rolled our eyes as we sat down at the table on Monday night forgetting that it was actually Monday. But we've grown as our family in our appreciation for how God has so graciously provided for us, and I pray that our boys are being edified at a young age to understand that the world is a much, much bigger place with far more suffering than suffering through eating a bowl of brown rice and pinto beans. Whether in our families, or in our churches, or in our community groups, we all have opportunities to build others up, to speak truth and live in a way that stimulates growth in others, particularly believers. We're coming to a close on Paul's fourth letter to the church in Corinth. And it's important to remember what's been going on in Paul's ministry up to this point. Paul is writing to the church. He's addressing the unrepentant minority who are questioning the motives of his ministry. As you've heard before in this series, Paul wrote four letters to the church. His first letter has since been lost. But in his second letter, which we know as 1 Corinthians, Paul challenged the church's ethical misbehavior and their association with idols. When Timothy arrived with the letter, he found a church in upheaval 
who, as author Russ Ramsey puts it, they were bending under the influence of those who opposed Paul. Now, Paul cared deeply for this church, and so he visited them. He visited them in person, and he called them to repent. And we know that the church pushed on, heavily, pushed on him heavily during that visit, and they eventually ran him off. But he didn't leave it there. Paul didn't wash his hands of it and say, forget it, I'm out of here, I'm not coming back. He knew that they needed counsel, that they needed correction, and that they needed to be pointed to the cross. So he wrote the tearful and severe letter referenced in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He pleaded with them to repent, and as Titus reported back to Paul, many did. Praise be to God. In response to this praiseworthy news, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. And while the repentance of the majority brought Paul great joy, he knew there was more work to do. False apostles were still present and leading, in the, leading some in the church away from the gospel. And still some criticized Paul and doubted his apostolic ministry. And so he wrote this firm yet loving letter defending his motive his message, and his ministry, and urging the rebellious minority to repent as he prepared to visit them a third time. Now, Corinth was a port city, heavy with commercial activity and full of immorality. There was lots of influence coming in and out, and it was driven by materialism and by debauchery. And the Corinthian church had fallen into this culture. The people followed the money, the popularity, the pedigree, and that certainly wasn't Paul. He was called humble and weak, both used in questioning his apostleship. This rejection of Paul was a rejection of Christ. They needed to be edified in Christ. They needed to be reminded of the gospel and Christ's love for them so that they would respond by loving God by growing in their knowing of him and then going and living obedient lives convicted by the Spirit. Does that sound familiar? We, by nature, spiral downward. We easily forget God's promises and his past faithfulness. We fall trapped to the deceitfulness of sin and we put other things before God. We need God's grace and one another to build on his foundation. Something healthy. Something structurally sound. Something worthwhile. As it says in Ephesians 6, and as David Morgan, for those of you that, that um, subscribe to his newsletter as they are preparing to head overseas, um, in his re most recent newsletter he said, when we give ourselves to the edification of the church, we align ourselves with Christ who loves the church and gave himself for her. And in Paul, God gave the Corinthian church a man of compassion who gladly spent his life at much cost and at much risk to build them up. But this is only by the grace of God. It is God who laid the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, that man can build upon. And man, Paul, is only capable by his grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit in him. The same is true for us today, church family. Jesus, 
the author and the perfecter of our faith, and his word are the foundation of any encouragement or correction that we offer to fellow believers. While we are called God's fellow workers in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it is God who gives the growth. Before we dive into today's text, let's take a quick minute to be reminded of the immediate context here before uh, verse 14. Our boast as followers of Jesus is not in all that we've accomplished, what we have or what rights we have. We were reminded last week by Pastor Dan that our boast is in the Lord, in the Lord of all power and strength who directs every step. And when everything seems to be going great or when we're walking in the valleys of affliction and suffering, our boast can be in him because he is greater than anyone or anything we could possibly boast in otherwise. In verses 11 through 13 of chapter 12, Paul addresses being rejected by the Corinthians in favor of the false apostles. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, even though he is weak in nothing, his apostleship is far superior to the false apostles because God's power is made perfect in his weakness. Paul is giving proof to the Corinthians that he is compelled by the love of Christ for them. In our passage today, Paul is looking ahead to his impending third visit to Corinth. He's preparing the church for his coming by giving a final defense to his apostleship and then reminding them of why he continues to write and visit. Paul wanted to establish the authority given to him by God so that the church would take him seriously. But as he argues, more importantly than that, his primary goal in writing and in visiting them is to edify the church. As Dan shared a couple of weeks ago, Paul wanted to build up the Corinthians into a healthy church on the trajectory of loving God and loving others. We see this desire to build up believers through many of Paul's epistles, including earlier in his ministry to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8 says, For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. And then chapter 13, verse 10, For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building you up and not for tearing you down. Paul's desire to build others up was not because he wanted the church to look good, because he established it, it was established under his watch, but for their personal spiritual well-being and their personal growth towards holiness. He wanted them to be equipped with truth so that they could discern false teaching. He wanted to encourage their hearts, and he wanted to urge them to be holy and walk in righteousness. It was all for their upbuilding. Paul was compelled by the love of Christ to live, not for himself, but for the one who died for all. With Paul as an example, for the building up of brothers and sisters, we must have our motive, our message, and our ministry rooted in Christ. And when we receive encouragement or correction, or anything in between, we must receive it with humility, trusting the motive and the message 
and the ministry of the brother or sister who is loving us enough to build us up. There are a couple questions that I believe we'll see answered in Paul's compassion and correction toward the Corinthian church and that we can use to examine ourselves in our own lives today. When building others up, what do you seek? When being built up, do you excuse or do you accept? Let's dive into our text for today. We pick up Paul's passion for the saints in Corinth in chapter 12, verse 14. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul is preparing to return to Corinth for his third visit since establishing the church there. And in chapter 2, we saw that his previous visit was painful and that he certainly doesn't want a repeat occurrence. And this, when Paul was last in Corinth, he found a church consumed by idolatry, openly rebelling against him and receiving a false gospel, and then caving into the temptations of the world that were so prominent in Corinth. This visit and his ensuing letter, the severe letter, caused much anguish of heart and many tears for Paul. The last thing he wanted to do was return to them and find them unrepentant in their sin. But Paul is committed to seeing them grow into being a healthy church who loves God and loves others. Now, Paul's motive had been called into question by the false apostles and some in the church. And his defense here in chapter 12 points out what he sought. He sought the people themselves. For the building up of these precious children, Paul's motive was rooted in Christ. Just as Jesus gave himself for the big C church out of his love for her, Paul gave himself for the edification of the local expression of the church in Corinth. He wants to be spent for them. Many of us have the joy of children. Sometimes maybe not the joy, but most times the joy, right? They're not cheap, are they? Children are not cheap. I have two boys, as Stephen mentioned, right? Uh, six and eight, Micah and Silas, and they're uh, completely financially dependent upon me. And we recently started giving them a weekly salary for chores that they do throughout the week. And we're not paying them very much, um, but they're learning to earn a wage as payment for work put in. And every Sunday, um, we pay them, and, and we ask them to put some of their money in each of three jars. Give, save, and spend. Pretty simple. And they have to put some money in give and save first before they put anything in the spend jar so that they begin to understand the concept of giving something up now for the benefit of others and saving for later should they need to access it in the future. We just went to Florida with my in-laws. We had a really good time. We did all the things that you could imagine in Florida. Maybe, maybe not quite, but, but most of the things. We went to the beach. It was awesome. We went to Disney. We had a hotel with the pool. It was awesome. But when we got to the hotel, it was probably like 12.30 in the middle of the night, kids were tired, I didn't make them pull out their wallet and pay up. 
or Venmo me and a quarter of the nightly rate for the hotel. I didn't, I didn't make them do that. And we went to Disney, this would have hurt, right? But I, when we went to Disney, I didn't make them stand outside the gate because they only had $4.75 in their spend jar, and that would have got them half a step into Disney World. I, I didn't do that. It wasn't about seeking what was theirs, which I guess, if you think about it, it's probably where this illustration breaks down because that's probably really what's mine, but hang with me. We didn't go to Disney so that at a young age my kids could experience the financial burden that a vacation like that has. That wasn't my motive. We went because I sought time with them. I sought seeing the joy of them experiencing a roller coaster or the Tower of Terror for the first time. There was never a thought of me asking my kids to pay me back. I wanted them, and I was glad to spend and be spent for them. I don't know if this is exactly how Paul was feeling when he wrote this, but he makes it pretty clear that his motive was not to go to Corinth because he knew that the people there had money and he could mooch off of them while he stayed there for a little while. He also didn't want the gospel to be distorted by requiring any kind of payment. He wanted to be with them. He knew that they needed to be encouraged and corrected in the gospel. And because he loved them like a father loves his children, he was glad to spend and be spent for them, expecting nothing in return for their good and for God's glory. So church, when building others up, what do you seek? If you're building someone up, is your motive rooted in Christ? Maybe, maybe you're not building someone up because you don't know how or you don't know maybe who needs it. I'd encourage you to consider that we are surrounded by people who need to be built up. Just look around you. Look at this body that you worship and fellowship with. The edification of believers is needed by every believer. None of us have arrived Learn what believers in your proximity are going through, struggling with, and where they might need to be encouraged by God's word. While Paul's motive was pure, he knew that there continued to be an unfounded accusation against him, and the rebellious and false teachers in the church were using this to try to deceitfully turn the believers away from Paul and the true gospel that he preached. And he addresses this accusation and states his defense in verses 16 through 18. But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? In an effort to persuade the believers in the church away from Paul, a rumor was started that he was taking advantage of them. And he was being accused of having impure motives in his collection of the offering for Jerusalem that we learned back in chapter 8, several weeks ago. We see in Romans 15 that evidently there was a need among the poor saints in Jerusalem. And Paul had committed to asking the church in the network to help provide aid. As Paul established churches, he grounded them in the gospel and encouraged the people on how they should live in response to Christ's love for them. And he collected whatever aid the churches wanted to give as he told them about their brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem. 
the Corinthian church knew Paul's reputation. He had done nothing to give them any grounds to doubt his motive. But some among them stirred up doubt to deceive others anyway. And we don't know why. But we do know that these false apostles, these deceivers, they would go to great lengths to pull the Corinthians um, away from following Paul. So he was accused of using the collection for his own profit. And in his defense in chapter 7, Paul points to the purity of those who he sent to assist with the collection, men that the Corinthian church had poured life into and comforted, which in turn encouraged Paul after his painful visit and tearful letter. Their warm reception and repentant response at Titus' last visit were evidence in Paul's defense that they trusted him and had no question of Paul and his ministry partner's integrity. If his co-laborers were not guilty of duping them in the collection, how could they think that Paul was guilty after preaching the gospel for free and refusing to become a burden to them financially? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 7-9 says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Their case seemed to contradict itself. It just didn't add up. Unfortunately, the church was easily swayed, and the deceitful accusation swayed them to fail to understand Paul, why Paul would refuse their support. This, too, has application for us today. How often do we know that someone's motive is pure, but we reject the message because we don't like it, or we don't like the way that it was said? I can tell you this is real in my life and particularly in my marriage. At times, when Linda tries to build me up with gentle and loving correction, which is quite often, I excuse it, because I don't feel like it was genuine enough. In my selfishness, I choose to discount any pure motive and immediately apply my interpretation that she's only saying it for her own benefit. That's real, and I'm guessing I'm not alone. When being built up, do you excuse or do you accept? To those being called to spiritual maturity, correction, or repentance, how are you receiving it? Are you listening to the heart of the brother or sister, or are you closing off your ears and your heart because of some assumption, thought, or desire of your own? Hear me. I, I realize that we will encounter ill-intended people with ulterior motives. But rather than going through the mental gymnastics of judging whether or not he or she is genuine, hear them, assume good intent, and take it before the Lord. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is the loving response. Not only is Paul's motive rooted in Christ for the building up of others, but his message is too. Let's read verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. 
Paul's question here is rhetorical. He doesn't owe the rebellious minority and false apostles anything. While, yes, a defense would be justified and prove him not guilty, these people are not his judge. Paul is speaking before God, not them. He's speaking before an audience of one who is all, knows all, and presides over all. While Paul is defending his authority so that his speaking in Christ will be heard, his defense is not rooted in trying to salvage his reputation. He knows that God understands his motive, and he hears his, mes- and hears his message, and that if it's not rooted in Christ, he will face judgment. But that gives Paul confidence. Because it's if his motive and message are rooted in Christ, then he is doing the work of the Father who sent him, and it pleases him. In the sight of God, Paul is speaking in Christ out of concern for them because he cares deeply for them and wants to see them spiritually healthy. His words are better spent in Christ, preaching the gospel and teaching truth to the believers in the church so they will turn from their sin, repent, and live solely for Jesus. Brothers and sisters, when you speak in building others up, what do you seek? Are you speaking for the good of others and for the glory of God? What we say matters. When we speak to build others up, our words should edify and help grow the person. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And God's word should not be our sort or should be our source for encouragement and for truth. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I'm not discounting the many good resources that are out there and certainly can build us up. Those are good gifts from the Lord, though written by fallible man. They're good. Use them. But use the word of God first and often When being built up through the words of others, do you excuse or do you accept? Do you sincerely hear for your edification? Do you seek to understand or do you seek to be understood? I'd encourage you to have willing hearts to hear from others the truth, encouragement, and correction if spoken in Christ. You are not the judge. We live and speak for an audience of one. Now Paul wraps up his concern for the church with an acknowledgement that he's fearful to return to them. Let's read in verses 20 and 21. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual morality, and sensuality that they have practiced. In addition to his motive and his message, Paul's ministry is rooted in Christ. 
for the building up of the saints. Even after his painful visit and tearful letter, while many repented, some patterns of sin remained in the church. This has got to be humbling for Paul. After how hard he's labored for these people, so much so that he knew that we know that it caused him uh, emotional and physical and mental pain. And by rejecting the call to repent, the rebellious were rejecting Paul's ministry and thereby rejecting Christ. It's going to be painful for Paul to go back to them again, and I'd imagine he might even be hesitant. But he loves them too much not to. Paul isn't going to shy away from what's hard. His commitment to the people of Corinth isn't shaken by his fear of how he'll find them or by the burdens that he carries of how he may have to be harsh towards them again. He doesn't desire to cause them pain, but he wants to restore them in truth by showing them their sin, leading them to repentance, and teaching them how to live obedient and upright lives. This isn't about him saving face. It's about them. We see Paul use the word fear twice in these two verses. He fears that when he comes, he may not find them as he wishes, and that they may find him not as they wish. And he fears that God may humble him before them, and that he may have to mourn over their unrepentance. Paul didn't want to return to Corinth to find them in the same spiritual condition as his last visit. And he writes this warning to try and help prevent the potential sadness and humiliation that he would face if they remained in these same sinful practices. The sins Paul's addressing are not one-offs in the church. They're a known pattern. And the church's identity is being founded in them rather than in Christ. And particularly the sins of impurity and sexual immorality and sensuality that Paul calls out in verse 21. And he says that these are sins that have been ongoing and have gone unrepentant by many in the church. Paul is building up the church through this rebuke, yet wishing that they would heed his warning and change their habits before he comes again. Paul established this church, and he sees these people as his children. He's committed to helping them get uncaught, but the rejection, the unrepentance is humiliating to him. One commentator describes Paul's humiliation really well. It will be a different kind of humiliation. It will not come from being demeaned and abased or being belittled or degraded according to the world's standards, but from being spiritually humbled before God for their moral disgrace. Most fear being judged by other humans. Paul feared God more. Most are only willing to take responsibility for their own conduct, and even then will try to pin any blame on someone or something else. Paul accepted responsibility before God for the Corinthians' conduct. No wonder he spent many a sleepless night burdened by anxiety over these churches. Are we in the American church burdened over our community groups? Over the people that we do life with? Over the people that we rub elbows with in ministry? At Windsor Community Church, when we see sin in the life of a brother or sister, what is our response? How are we in the church responding to some of these same sins that destroy marriages and churches in our culture today? How easily we leave lustful thoughts unconfessed 
how rarely we're willing to press in and ask the hard questions about uncomfortable things like pornography. Sin should not be tolerated, and it must be rooted out. This takes careful untangling by men and women of God being active in the lives of brothers and sisters. Sin is destructive. We must call believers to holy living when we see patterns of sin in their lives. With the goal of restoration, we must gently but honestly point out their sin, guide them towards repentance, and allow the grace and forgiveness of God to satisfy their souls. The Spirit does the transforming work, but we must start the restoring work. Galatians 6.1 is a great reminder of what our response should be when a fellow believer is caught in sin. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. For the building up of brothers and sisters, our ministry to them must be rooted in Christ. It is him who restores. It is the gospel that rescues. And only by his grace is someone able to be built up. When ministering to one another by building others up, what do you seek? Maybe someone shares a community group about their struggle with anger or impatience. How do you respond? Do you say, yeah, I struggle with that too. Man, that's a bummer. And then move on, change the subject. Or are you willing in that very moment to roll up your sleeves and get dirty? Are you committed to loving Christ's church as he loves you? When being built up, do you excuse or do you accept? Brothers, are you willing to let a brother in that can ask you hard questions? Sisters, Are you willing to let a sister help cut away what you're entangled in so that your relationship with the Father may be restored? Church, we must be a body willing to spend and be spent for each other. Building others up is costly, it's risky, and it's others-focused. But Christian, we should look at Paul's motive his message, and his ministry for the building up of the believers in Corinth, which was rooted in Christ. And we should consider how we can go and do likewise. Paul might be a model for how we are to love others in building them up, but it's the love of Christ that compels us. When we receive encouragement or correction, church, let's do it with humility trusting in the motive, message, and ministry of the brother or sister who is loving us enough to build us up. Maybe you're sitting here today or you're listening online and you don't have a relationship with the Father. Maybe your only source of being built up is self-help books or flattery from your coworkers or friends. There's a better source, and his name is Jesus. He is the foundation, and by his grace, he uses others in our lives to speak truth and build us up. If you've not put your faith 
and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you do not have a relationship with the Father who loves you and desires you, know that you are wanted. Jesus opens wide his arms, even wider than we see Paul do for the church in Corinth. He was spent in the most complete of ways when he emptied himself and became obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. For you. You were created in his image to be in relationship with him, and he is ready to receive you into his everlasting kingdom. All you need to do is believe and repent. I'll close with this. To humbly accept biblical teaching and counsel for our upbuilding is to humbly accept Christ. We are weak and we're helpless without him. If we depend on our own ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or on the ability of others to encourage us or help us overcome sin, we will fall. Regardless of our effort, cost, or risk, and compelled by the love of Christ who gives the growth, we must be a church that builds each other up. Because our love for one another is too great not to. Pray with me. Now, gracious Heavenly Father God, we are again humbled. God, by your word, God, by your great power, and God, by your providence of who we are sitting next to this morning, God, who we are rubbing elbows with throughout the week, God, who we are doing life with, maybe in community group or otherwise. God, we know, God, that your intent to put us in those places, God, is for us to love others and for you to be glorified and for us to love you. God, as we, um, as we are a church in a broken world, God, would you use us in a mighty way in each other's lives? God, would you use the Spirit, Spirit, fill us with your wisdom that would be beneficial to others and glorifying to you? And God, as we leave this place this morning, God, that it wouldn't, um, it wouldn't just be a, a checked box, but God, that we would go out and live in a way that's glorifying to you. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we're thankful that you loved us first. In his name we pray.